Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? We're reading from Acts 3 today. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel to those who came after him, also proclaimed these days. You are the sons of the prophets, and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. <clears throat> what is your most prized possession that you own? Not, don't say family members or things like that, the obvious stuff. What is your most prized possession? Maybe it's a, a photo, a, a gift from a loved one, a hobby that you enjoy. It's hard to imagine life without. What's that prized possession that you have? Kenny Phillips this week, when I asked him that question, said it was his Bible, and I immediately told him that that's cheating. And so if you said your Bible, you were cheating. And uh, it also makes me feel kind of bad because I realized my answers uh, this week, when I realized that, my answer to those two questions would be my most prized possessions are my truck and my smoker. And, uh, you know, you think truck and a smoker, there's part of you that's like, wow, that's really vain. But then there's a part of you that's like, I love having a pastor that loves barbecue that much, you know? <laughs> it's that Texas side of me. But I would be quite upset if I lost either of those two things. I mean, it, you know, kind of five stages of grief kind of upset, you know, staring out the window for long periods of time because they mean a lot to me. I asked Matt Cope that question this week, what's your most prized possession? And he thought about it for a while. And he said, you know, if I had to grab something in the fire, it'd be my hunting rifle. Hashtag, you know, things Texans say, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'd grab my, my hunting rifle in a fire. Okay. Well, but then he said, why? He said, I want to take that hunting rifle and I want to give it to my sons. I want to hand it down to them. I want to share it with them. And as he talked about it, you know, you realize that it's prized to him and it's precious because it points to something deeper. For him, it pointed to this sacred time between a father and a son. It pointed to a desire to be remembered by his children whenever he's dead and gone of the memories that they had together and the life that he tried to show them to live. And I thought, man, I need to think about my truck and smoker again. And so I started thinking about it and I was like, well, that's kind of true of me too because I love my truck, but I also have plans of wanting to keep it as nice as I can so I can hand it down to my son because he loves it. Every day I come home from work and the first thing he does is run up to me and say, dad, dad, big truck, tractor, tractor, tractor. And he will keep saying that until we get in that truck and drive endless loops around the back alleys of our neighborhood. And it's so great just to sit in that passenger seat and just watch him cruise around, you know? <laughs> then I thought about my smoker. And I thought, you know, I want to teach him how to do it as well. I want to teach him how to smoke a brisket. I want to teach him how to slow down and to learn how to try and master something. And I want him to be able to learn to sit with himself in silence throughout the night. And I thought, too, it's like it's so valuable to me because it's been a big part of the life in this church and not just our fellowship together, but also because I get to cook for my friends something that I love and something I enjoy. And maybe them having dinner already cooked for the rest of the week might give them more time as a family. And that's meaningful to me as well. Certainly, we can value things in materialistic and selfish ways, and for materialistic and selfish reasons, but might we also recognize that perhaps we value and treasure certain things because they point to something deeper within us, a deeper desire, that there's something in us that is compelled to share what brings us joy with another. It seems like we're made for that. Now, do you share your faith? Do you share your faith at all? If not, does that not communicate 
perhaps the value that you have placed upon it. The book of Acts, as we survey it and we go through it, it is very clear that we are to be a people that bear witness to the most precious gift of all for the life of the world. And yet, if we aren't sharing it with the world, then we really have to wrestle with the question, is it really precious to us? Is it really something that we hold of value? Now, as we consider that, might we admit that certainly if you follow Jesus for any amount of time, that at some point it's inevitable that the gospel just becomes old hat. It becomes normal, and we become unmoved by it. We're no longer compelled by the message that it tells us. And to be a people of witness, must we not push back and recognize that reality and push back against it? You know, who wants to buy anything from a yawning salesman? And so how can we, as a people that are called to bear witness, begin to move in a direction where the gospel's life again? If that's where you find yourself, how can we move in a place where the gospel can be compelling, where we can be moved by the claims that are offered to us, and how might it be precious above all else? How can your heart leap like the lame man? Because the power offered to him is no less than the power that's offered to you. And Peter, that is his desire for this crowd to recognize, and it's his desire for us. But as he begins his sermon, uh, notice when he begins to address these crowds, he does not simply say, this is the power of God, now go bear witness. Bearing witness is not something that's journalistic where we just say what happened. There's something about bearing witness that Peter wants us to recognize that needs to take place first. And he leads them down a path in his sermon that we might not expect. Because to lay hold of this power that they have just witnessed, they first have to own a deeper reality about who they are. And before we can truly bear witness in the way that God would intend, we too have to, you know, lay hold and recognize and own a deeper reality about who we are. And he gets right to it, and he does not waste any time. In the beginning of a sermon, he doesn't spend really any time talking about the miracle at all. Instead, he... Uh, in verses 12 through 15, he gets down to the point, and he is quite confrontational, and he is quite direct. His first thing to do is to ask a question in verse 12. He says, you see this, this power, but why do you wonder? Why do you marvel? Why are you surprised? Did you not know that this was God's plan all along to share his life-giving power with the world? The one who's doing this is the God that you are coming to this temple to worship. Do you even know him? And then he says, yes, you know him. You killed him. You murdered him. He says four things that he charges this crowd with. He says, you delivered him to Pilate, a foreign power. You denied him when Pilate found him innocent and wanted to release him. And you asked for a murderer to be released instead. And you killed the author of life. Peter is not rubbing any backs that day. And quite frankly, if you look at it, you know, why is Peter leading them in this way? I think right off the bat, it's quite obvious that he wants this crowd to experience a profound awakening fear. But why? Why not just talk about Jesus' love, God's blessings? Well, the reason is that Peter actually wants what he's offering to them to be precious, to be an incredible, life-changing gift. But it never will be unless they are confronted with and own the reality of the decisions that they have made. And that sometimes 
when people fall asleep the way this crowd has, the only way that they might possibly be awoken is to bring some measure of fear as to the consequences that they are not even aware of. Sometimes fear is that very necessary first step. I was reading an article this week in the New York Times that was talking about the difficulty of getting people to evacuate during a hurricane. You wouldn't think it was that hard, but evidently it is. And so they, they were talking about how, uh, you know, it's not talking about people that, that can't leave, like elderly or infirm or people in hospice care. It's talking about just people that stay. You know, like I have a pet iguana. I have a dog. You know, I'm going to stay because of that. Or I have a TV and I don't want to be looted. Just people that make some sort of reasoning to stay. And they talked about the history of uh, how they've changed their strategy to get people to leave. And so they said, first off, they started off with this just general call to say, hey, there's a hurricane coming to Dallas you need to evacuate. But evidently that wasn't good enough and people wouldn't leave. And so then they started to get uh, more particular geographically and move closer to home. And they would say, there is a hurricane that's going to hit Forney, then Heath, then Rockwall, then Wiley. You are in the direct line of this hurricane if you live in these areas. Evacuate. People wouldn't do it. And then they started to compare it with past hurricanes. They would say, this hurricane is this many times more powerful than the one that you just experienced this many years ago. But people would say, you know what? I got through that one. I'll get through this one. Lastly, they completely changed their tactic. They basically started to go around to people and they would say, if you choose not to evacuate, then please write your social security number on your arm along with your next of kin so that the rescuers can identify the bodies. And it became quite effective. People started getting in their cars. Because sometimes fear is the only way to wake up the prideful and the stubborn to their condition and the consequences of their decisions. And this is exactly Peter's posture to awaken a sleepy people. That this is the history in this hurricane article. It's such a perfect picture of this strategy that God has used with Israel and this crowd, and they continue to they, you know they have continued to ignore. So he starts off in verse 22. And he reminds them, he says, did not Moses say that God would send you a prophet to guide you and to lead you and to be that evacuation call to a greater life and a greater purpose? But they didn't listen. And then God starts to go closer to home and become geographical. And so he would send prophets like Amos to Judah. He'd send prophets to to Israel to call them back to God and to be that evacuation call out of their sin. But they did not listen. And then God would say, remember the times past and the calamities I brought upon you because there's another calamity coming for you. And they said, we got through that. We'll get through this one. We'll be just fine. We're a resilient people. And then God finally moves into their homes and sends them his most precious gift. He sends Jesus to walk the streets and to sit in their homes and to have dinner at their tables and to heal their blind, their lame, their poor, and their sick. And they kill him. And they kill him. Peter is trying to wake them up and confront them with the reality that they have ignored every evacuation call. And the consequences are clear. That those who reject the prophets are eradicated. And what do you think is in store for you when the prophet comes along and you kill him? What does that say about what is going on in your heart? He wants them to awaken to the irony that the very God they think they've come to serve and worship in this temple they killed, and in light of that reality, is not a little bit of fear, perhaps the most logical emotion to feel in the moment. Because it might awaken their hearts to be rescued. And Peter wants them to wake up to their dire situation that as the water levels are rising, they are asleep in a lazy boy. 
And the confrontation of this fact with the crowds is not new in Acts, and it's not going away in the book of Acts either. If you look closely in the first five sermons of Acts, in chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, and 7, in every single one, the people are confronted with this every single time. You put Jesus to death. You killed him. You murdered him. You crucified him. And the book of Acts starts here over and over and over again. And think about when it's starting. It's starting as the church is being born and the Spirit is going out to create a new kind of people. This is what is on the table that you must accept first. And Acts brings it up over and over and over and over again, not just for them, but for us and to, as a testimony to every generation, that every generation that would come after it would recognize this fact, that you cannot profess Jesus Christ to be your Savior unless you also confess to be his murderer that your sin put him to death and that all of our fingerprints are on that hammer that hung him on the cross. And so if we want to be a part of what God is doing, just like these people, this reality is the only way in. We cannot claim everything that Jesus is unless we also understand who we are. And yet how easy is it for us to forget that most fundamental fact about our humanity and what it means to be a sinner? How easy is it to fall asleep in our busy schedules? That the most eternally significant truth about us that should raise some of the deepest questions that we have is often ignored. And those evacuation calls just, we ignore them and move on. And we can all fall asleep. And the reality of when we do is that our sin begins to create no urgency within us. There's no healthy fear that there's really anything wrong. We don't look around and see any of the destruction. We don't look around and see that maybe there's some damage that my behavior is causing to my family, my wife, my kids, my friends, my life. We just kind of move on and we think my sin actually isn't that big of a deal because it's never really worth my time to think about. And yet at the same time, I make the profession that the sin in my life required and caused the death of my Savior. We not see the irony of our profession and yet what we do not want to confess. So as you think about your life for a second and where you might be in all of this, is there any urgency? Is there any desire to see your sin for what it is so that you might move to a new place or do we want to fall asleep? How convicted, or you know, how often do you feel convicted about something but you know you just go on about your day? Now, how many of you could name three sins in your life? Like three actual sins. Not general, Jesus died for my sins, but what are they? And then are we actually moving in a place to try and lay those at the feet of Jesus? And every Sunday, you know what happens in that 20 seconds of quiet whenever we say, and now in the quietness of your own heart, confess your own particular sins to God. Can we not at oftentimes we would say that it's radio silence between us and God. We don't offer him anything. And Jesus comes to us all the time and he offers new life. He offers power to be transformed into a new person, into a person that is formed and fashioned after himself and experience his life, his joy, his mission, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his peace. And that kind of life isn't one we don't want because we say, actually, I don't really want that kind of life because I don't really want to work on my anger. I don't want to work on my lust. I don't want to work on my materialism. I don't want to work on any of the responses that I have had to the pain and sadness in my life. This is why this picture of sin, 
the, uh, this passage gives us a, a perfect picture of sin. It's often described as missing the mark. That is the terrible definition. It is not a game of bullseye. What it is, is sin is actually the fact that we would wish God dead so that we can go do our own thing. That's sin. And the cross is the ultimate expression of that. And so, as we recognize the fact that we push that away all the time, that our situation often can be just like the crowds in this text, that we come asking for God's power and his presence. And yet, when it's offered to us and it's extended to us, we kill it and we snuff it out. So, here's my point. If we are to be a people of witness, how can we be if we ourselves don't want the very life that we are supposed to share with the world? To move towards experiencing that, that gospel is precious. We have to be awakened to the reality of our, for our, of our own sin. Acts seems to point there. And really, the people I know right now that are experiencing a new vitality in their faith and experiencing new life and new joy and new freedom are the people that finally woke up and said, I actually be, see this sin in my life. I actually see the damage it's done. I actually can see it for what it is. And my eyes are opened. I need to own it because I am the lame man. I have to be lifted up. And it's so easy to fall asleep to the fact that there is that power at work within us that chooses death over life. And when we do that, and we aren't aware of the magnitude and reality of what sin actually is, and we fall asleep, we are just like the lame man, and we don't even know it. Because we resign ourselves to simply living a life of rattling the can, hoping to collect just enough to get through the day, whenever there is the promise of something far more. Instead, we settle for a life of maintenance. And this is exactly where Peter wants to take this crowd. Yes, he wants them to recognize that, you know, what have I done? To wake up to the reality of their sin. But he doesn't stop there either. Certainly a little bit of fear is most necessary if this is true. But fear is not enough. Because it's the kindness of God that truly leads us to repentance. Peter knows that. So he asks them a question. He says, do you not know what you've been missing? Do you not know that you are called for more? Because in his call to repentance, he also reminds them of the people that they were called to be. In verse 25, he says, you are the sons of the prophets. You are the children of the covenant of God. You are the children of Abraham that were supposed to be a blessing to the nations, which means that you were the ones that were supposed to be doing these signs and wonders. Do you not know who you are? Lay hold of that call because the offer is still on the table. The, off the offer to be this kind of people. And really, is there any more beautiful picture of God's kindness and grace than in these first moments of the book of Acts? At the very place that Jesus goes by the power of his spirit is to the very people that yelled crucify him two months before. And he continues to offer them the opportunity to become the people that he invites them to be. The same hands they crucified reach back and offer his joy, his power, his love, his purpose. And it's in being awakened to the reality of our sin that we see that offer as beautiful and precious. The reason we need to see the reality of our sin is because it only serves to magnify the love and grace of our Savior. But if we don't look at our sin, then why do we have a need for one? 
And this is the path that Peter would lead them down. To be a people of witness, Peter would lead them down this path to own who they are so that they might see the grace of the gospel, but it's also a path that he had to take. He wants them to take that same path that he did before they charged the world and bear witness. If you remember Peter, he was the one that said he would never, ever let Jesus die. Like when Jesus said he was going to die, Peter said, no, that's not ever going to happen. I'm so devoted to you. I won't allow it. And then Luke, who wrote Acts, also wrote the Gospel of Luke. He recorded that the third time that uh, Peter denied Jesus, the rooster immediately crowed. And when it did, it's, uh, it says, that, you know, Jesus, who's up on this platform at an unjust trial, when the rooster crowed, he turned and he looked right at Peter. Can you imagine how that felt? Because it said that in that moment, he remembered everything that Jesus said that he would do. And it says that he went out and he wept bitterly. And I could not imagine the guilt and shame and self-contempt and self-hatred that he had to feel after that moment. Because now he actually really saw what was in his heart. Is that he would rather let Jesus die than be associated with him. I'd imagine the reality of his sinful heart had to be unspeakably devastating. Which is part of the reason why we don't really want to face perhaps our own sin. But then we miss out on what was offered to Peter because Jesus comes to Peter after his resurrection and he makes him breakfast on the beach and as he does, he asks him, three, he asks him the same question three times. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love, me, love you. Then feed my sheep. Three times he's asked him that question and three times he gives him the same command. Why would the response of Jesus be, okay, then feed my sheep? Because Jesus is making it clear in this restoration, Peter, you now see who you are and now you see who I am. Now you have something to share with the world. Now you have something to offer to feed my sheep. I give you what is most precious to me. And this is necessary. Peter would have us go this road. He'd have us walk down that same path that he went where we recognize our sin. So we might recognize the restoring forgiveness of Jesus, but also that we might actually have something to share with the world. But there's one more aspect, and that actually allows us to see. Twice it says Peter saw in this passage. He saw the lame man, and he saw this crowd, and he was able to feed them. And why is it so necessary for this to happen is so that we can see? It's because we see the world very differently if we don't see it through the humbling grace of Jesus. There's a doctor in Dallas. He's an ophthalmologist, and he works with children that have a specific disability of the eye. It's a... I don't know whether it's a disease or a disability, but it's very debilitating and difficult for this child to get through life because of this disability. And it's also very difficult for their parents because it's hard for the parents to understand and to you know, know what these children need. And so the parents are always trying, and this doctor is always having frustrated parents that are doing their best, and yet they're having a hard time. And so this doctor did a workshop to bring in these parents and these children. The parents started to share. They started to say, you know, I feel so bad because I do the best I can to try and help my child, and yet whenever he doesn't get it or she doesn't get it or they don't work or this doesn't work, I get frustrated, and then that causes them to get frustrated, and it's just a mess. I feel like I can't go on like this. And it's time after time they said that. And then this doctor went, and he got an apparatus that he had made, and he put it on each one of the parents. What the apparatus allowed them to do is it actually allowed them to see the rest of the world in the same way their child did. There wasn't a dry eye in the room. Because as they looked through that apparatus, 
and they saw the world the way their child did, they realized how blind they were. In that moment, they realized all of that anger and filth that was in their own heart that they poured out on their child who was helpless. And in that, they were able to actually see their child as they were. And they were actually able to see real problems now. And I would imagine they had something completely new to share when they realized what was in their heart and how much damage it was doing. This is why Peter would have us go down this road, is that we need to see the world that we are called to. And he would have us lay hold of the reality of our sin and to want to actually see it for what it is and the death that it causes but also in that we recognize the beauty and the grace of Jesus that still goes back to sinners all the time, each and every day, offering new life to them. Because those two things are the lenses by which we view the world. And it's through that that it creates a humbled gratitude that we go and witness out of. Not some situation where we misidentify the problem and we say we need more of this, we need more of that. No, we actually understand what each and every person needs and we look for how to offer it to them because we know what we need and we know what we have received and it allows us to see completely different. And then we will witness out of the overflow of the heart, not obligation. As we close, I leave you with two things for this week, which is a prayer and a practice. As far as a prayer, I would ask that you, I would challenge you to actually pray, Jesus, I want to see my sin the way you see it. I want your eyes. I want to understand what is at work within me that I'm so blind to. I want to understand the reality of my sin and ask Jesus to show you your contribution to the cross. But then, ask him also to show you, not to show you, ask him that you would feel his love. Ask him that you would feel deep in your heart the forgiving power of his love. It's not something you read in a book. And if you have trouble finding words for that prayer, read Psalm 51, because it has both. And lastly, I leave you with a practice. Is that I challenge you to, find, to repent and confess every day this week. Find something. If you can't find something, make something up. It's probably true anyways. And if you can't think of something or it's hard to make something up, ask your spouse because it just so happens that they've been making a list since the day they met you. And they can have that in a three-ring binder. Uh, they can zip that up and email it to you. Ask your spouse and have the courage to ask them to help you see. And lastly, I'd say to our service coordinators for our community groups, you've been given a task to take us and allow us to serve in our community. We need you. We need you to help us see. We need you to take us to the blind, the poor, the lame, the sick, the widow, and the orphan. We need to see our story in their story. We need to see their situation so that we might understand ours, that we were all once orphaned and widowed and abandoned, but Jesus. We need you to help us see. Would you put soup ladles in our hands? Would you take us wherever you need to go? But I'm praying for you that the Spirit would awaken you to see where we might go and that you might take that calling seriously and be a part of us being a church that desires to bear witness. Rockwell Perez, what is it you want your most prized possession to be?
Jesus, we come to you and we ask that you would be with us this morning at your table. We ask that you would help us to come in our inability, not our pride. We ask that you'd help us to come in our lameness, our deadness of heart, so that we might be awoken. We thank you that you continue to offer your grace to us. We just don't often want to consider the reality of our sin, especially when life is difficult and hard. Trying to raise children, trying to be a husband or a wife is hard enough, and yet we have to think about the reality of who we are as those who would put you on the cross. And yet we need that realization. We need the humbling reality of who we are so that we might all the more experience your love. We ask that you would use us, that we would be those who would bleed the love of our Savior into our families, into our relationships, into one another, and into the world around us. We ask all this according to your power at work within us and by your grace. Amen.